Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Eric Adler. He's professor of classics at University of Maryland, author of two books, previous books, Classics, The Culture Wars and Beyond is one, and Valorizing the Barbarians, Enemy Speeches in Roman Historiography. That, that actually sounds interesting, Professor Adler. Uh, and there's a new book out. It's called The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. That is our topic. Welcome, Professor Adler. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we'll, we'll jump right in. Uh, your introduction is entitled The Sick Man of Higher Education. Uh, uh, well, who is the sick man of higher education? What are some of the many symptoms of disease that you identify in the introduction and further in chapter one. Thank you so much for that question. Yes, the sick man of higher education is most assuredly the humanities. Um, they're the sick part of contemporary American universities and colleges, and they're the sick part, I think, of world universities to a great extent as well, as I attempt to demonstrate in the introduction in the book as a whole. I think that it would be difficult for your listeners not to have a sense by now that the humanities are not faring well on American college campuses. And there are numerous signs of this. One is a decrease in the number of humanities majors on campus. And second, um, and I think perhaps more importantly right now, is the fact that a number of humanities programs are being gutted. Um, this was happening before the COVID problems that are, are obviously a worldwide pandemic, and it's increasing now. So a number of American colleges and universities have either decided to shutter humanities programs entirely or have suggested that they aim to do so very soon. So it seems to me that the situation for the humanities and a rationale for the humanities are urgently needed today. I think most people would agree. For a long time, there was a lot of denial among humanities people then throughout the 90s and the aughts that there were some serious problems. But I think the, the material losses we see for the humanities, for instance, in the number of programs that have closed, uh, the decline of majors and so on, how have humanists, as you've seen, tried to defend or shore up or redefine the humanities in this current climate? I think you're exactly right, Mark, in how you suggest people were in a sort of denial, particularly in the 80s and 90s, and even afterwards, even after the 2008 financial collapse. A lot of people still wanted to believe that everything was still okay. One of the chief problems that I 
demonstrate in my book, I think, is that many humanities professors are not in fact humanists. And this is an important distinction to make. And so as a result, they've offered skills-based justifications for the humanities that rely on concepts such as critical thinking as the conduits of the humanities. And so in some senses, their defenses of the humanities are not actually defenses of the humanities per se. They're supposedly the defenses of what happens afterwards. And the problems, or one of the problem with this uh, sort of defense is that the skills involved are very nebulously defined. And furthermore, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for humanities faculty members to presume that critical thinking, for example, is a skill that is only learned in the humanities classroom. That is not true. And it's an insult, in fact, to people who teach in a number of different disciplines outside of the humanities orbit. And so one thing that I'm trying to demonstrate is that the definition of the humanities and what the humanities can do for students and for the young in general has been kind of curtailed in this way that's kind of bizarre to people who are genuinely humanists. And that is one of the serious problems that's confronting the humanities today and its continued survival in American higher education. It has always struck me as odd, Eric, when the humanities make special claims for themselves, such as we teach critical thinking. How is this heard by their colleagues across the quad? I mean, I can imagine the scientists saying, look, nothing is better on critical thinking than scientific method. Uh, we teach that all the time. Who are you guys? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And you're you're putting your finger on something that's really important. First of all, I think a lot of humanities faculty members who focus on critical thinking as the kind of silver bullet in the humanities defenses don't actually define what critical thinking is. And that's really striking. If you're going to suggest that this is the reason why the humanities need to be retained is because they offer critical thinking, I think you're duty bound to suggest that the humanities actually know what critical thinking is, and they don't. And in part, I think it's because it's a nebulous concept. I mean, what's the difference between critical thinking and good thinking or right thinking or thought of being thoughtful more generally? So this is one of the uh, serious problems. And second, as you point out, and I think you pointed this out in a number of articles as well, I'm thinking of a couple of pieces for the new criterion. How can you suggest that only the humanities offer critical thinking? That is itself uncritical in an understanding of what other disciplines outside the humanities orbit actually accomplish. Attempts to define the humanities along the skills line, the higher order thinking skills, the problem solving, the critical thinking, and so on. We've seen this for a few decades going on now. There are a couple of questions I want to ask you about that. But first, let me just ask, Eric, are these arguments at all successful? Is there any sign that these arguments have done anything to bolster the prestige and popularity of the humanities. Do you see it? I don't really see it. And unfortunately, um, I, I can understand why people are attempting to make skills-based defenses because they have to understandably respond to a number of different people who are questioning the value of the humanities in general. And so I can understand if parents are concerned, are my students, are my kids going to be employable after they finish their educations and so forth? I can understand why they yeah. might muster these skills-based defenses. The problem is that these defenses are not persuasive. And as I attempt to argue in the book, these defenses on the basis of skills have been going on since at least the early 19th century, and they've never worked. 
And one of the reasons they've never worked is that they actually cut against the grain of the humanities. The humanities are supposed to be about humanism, and they're actually supposed to be a response to the skills-based focus scholasticism of the medieval period. So by employing skills-based defenses of the humanities, we're actually using a kind of scholastic argument in favor of humanism, which is itself bizarre because humanism was supposed to be a response to the skills-based focused scholastic medieval university. This leads us into pretty early in the book where you say we've got to go back in time. While most culture wars arguments about the humanities really go back to maybe the 70s or 80s as as the point of origin, you say, no, we got to go way, way back. And you start with the ancients. How did the ancients define the humanities or humanitas? I do argue that that's important. I think in large part because people have a sort of cartoonish vision of what the humanities are, and they don't recognize that the tradition is millennia long, and it's actually variegated, it's complex. And this makes it extremely difficult to defend the humanities today. And I think that that's something that people have to recognize. Humanitas, or the studia humanitatis, the studies of humanity, or the studies of civilization, is a phrase first coined in the extant literature by Cicero, the Roman state statesman, philosopher, thinker from the first century BC. And he offered a kind of capacious, Greek-based, but Roman-centered also approach to study more generally and study associated with the freeborn. This is how he also coins the phrase artes liberales, or well, we're not sure he coined it, but it's the first use of it in the extant literature, the liberal arts. And so for him, the humanities were actually the sum total of Greek and Roman learning as a whole, which included math and the sciences and so forth. And this is something I think, it's just one thing I think, that's very important for defenders of the humanities to recognize today that the ancient conception of the humanities is in some ways similar to our contemporary conception of the humanities, but in some ways radically different. You go in in depth into Cicero's defense of the poet where who was on trial, where the defense of the humanities gets articulated. You, you talk about the Greek notion and as opposed to the Roman notion. Quickly, is there an important difference between the Greek notion of the humanities and the Roman? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I do think that it's actually a complex answer for that question. So obviously the term humanitas, from which we get the word humanities, is Roman. So to some degree, our conception of the humanities stems from a Renaissance focus on Roman writers such as Cicero. And so our the pedigree is to some degree Roman and the, the Greeks had different ideals. But obviously uh, the Greeks had pioneered almost all the senses of ancient learning that Cicero cobbled together in his conception of the humanities. So obviously pre-existing Greek educational ideals had been deeply influential to Cicero. Now one thing I do think that the Romans were very important in changing from the Greek conception that has been very important to the humanities from antiquity to today is that Cicero and the Romans believed that the study of Greek literature was just as important as the study of Roman literature. So foreign language study becomes a deeply important aspect of the humanities in Roman antiquity, whereas the ancient Greeks focused on their own culture's literary classics. Hmm, interesting. And Cicero's early supporters in Rome, I mean, but before to the Renaissance, I mean, the Renaissance humanists, yes, they 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 idolized Cicero. 
were Cicero's words in favor of the humanities, did they become, in, in, in ancient Rome, did they become touchstones? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's sort of difficult to tell to what degree were they and so forth. And obviously Cicero and other ancient writers offered an idealized conception of what Roman education was like. And so we're not perfectly certain how much that matched the practice of Roman education. But it is certainly the case that other later Roman writers who talk about uh, liberal arts education and the Studia Humanitatis, such as Quintilian, such as uh, Vitruvius, such as Seneca, they do refer back to Cicero. So it seems very clear that he originated a kind of tradition of thinking about Roman education in a philosophical sense. You then jump in time and you come to America. How did the humanities first come to America and develop in the existing colleges. A lot of that has to do with Renaissance humanism, which I talk about before discussing the move to America because it obviously predates that. So the Renaissance humanists, um, starting in the 13th century, but with greater emphasis later on, narrowed the purview of the humanities. They got their inspiration from Cicero, but they actually changed what Cicero believed and offered a kind of narrowed conception of the humanities, which focused on Greek and Latin learning. They cast away the notion that the liberal arts and the humanities were the same thing, and instead they shunned the sciences and mathematics, uh, vocational technical education, which also wasn't part of the Roman conception either. And they focused specifically on the masterworks of Greek and Latin learning. And they believed that students should study these languages and study these writers in the original language in order to perfect themselves, and that this was the ultimate goal of higher education. This became deeply influential throughout the Renaissance in European education, and as a result, it ended up being the chief intellectual inspiration of the early American colleges. You don't really go into this, but it's come up in some previous podcasts. In those early American colleges, uh, the, the, the primary function was the training of Christian ministers, correct? Well, I mean, I think that's true and false, it seems to me. So I think some people have made the more polemical argument that the reason these early colleges existed is to create uh, Christian ministers. And obviously that was an important function, but that was not the only function of these uh, institutions. And so, in fact, many people who went to these colleges would go into one of the three so-called learned professions, in which ministry was one, but medicine was another, and being a lawyer was a third. So it isn't really the case that they only existed to train future ministers. Okay. And, and so the issue of pagan material uh, in a in a Christian world, it didn't really come up very much in in the American colleges. It, it, did, it did to some degree. I mean, I think you you point to something that's actually really important, which is that the Christian response to classical antiquity and particularly pagan classical antiquity has been fraught because there have been obviously uh, uh, Aristotle is deeply important to scholasticism and deeply important to the history of to Aquinas and to scholasticism uh, to the to Western learning overall to, to Christendom I think it's safe to say and numerous other authors including Cicero have been deeply important Plato too so there has been a sense in which Christianity has reflected back on the paganism of Roman and Greek antiquity and been able to use it for their own 
concerns. At the same period of time, there has been a sense of nervousness. Are we really going to get our moral bearings from Homer? Are we really going to get them from Plato and so forth and from Aristotle? These were not Christians. And so I think one of the things that opponents of the classical humanities exploited during the course of the battle of the classics that I talk about that occurred in the late 19th century and into the 20th century in the United States was the potential anti-Christian bona fides of classical antiquity and of this kind of learning. It's one of many attacks made on the classical humanities that were offered during the time period. This gets us to, as you said, the core uh, issue of the book, the battle of the classics that gets us into the late 19th century. Now, first, before we get into that, how did the advent of the research university influence the nature of the humanities? If before this, the humanities were the reading, the reading of the classics, uh, the reading of the Roman and Greek uh, sages and historians and poets and, and, and philosophers, the research university obviously would have a different agenda. How did the research university approach the humanities? The research university starts, uh, the sort of professionalization of, of higher education in the West starts in Germany in the 18th century, and it moves to American education in the mid-19th century AD. And it really does fundamentally reshape the way that college faculty members and even students going to college conceptualize the value of uh, going to a college in the first place. One thing I think it does is it fundamentally reorients our impression of what one's supposed to do in higher learning overall. As I've already kind of given you some sense of, the classical humanities in some senses were backward looking. They were focused on the inculcation of the received wisdom of the ancients. Whereas the professionalized modern university is focused more on the discovery of new knowledge. And so gone was the conception, or at least greatly reduced, was the conception that one should study great authors from the past in order to get some sense of how you ought to live your life. And instead, uh, the study of the humanities, or at least the classical humanities, becomes a kind of querying of facts about antiquity, however insignificant, in order to lead to a goal of progress, to an understanding that we know more about the past than has been known in the past itself. And so in some ways, I think in the most fundamental ways, this reorientation was anti-humanistic. And from that orientation has come really all the problems for the modern humanities today. There was a speech given by Henry Adams's brother. Uh, I, I see him as Henry Adams's brother because I, I, I teach Henry Adams, but not his brother. But you, you, you point out he gave a speech that became a national controversy. What happened there? Yeah. So in 1883, Charles Francis Adams Jr., who came from the famous Adams clan, as Henry Adams, his, his younger brother, did as well, gave a speech at Harvard as part of the commencement ceremony in which he argued that Harvard has got to stop requiring Greek on its, on its admissions examination, that this had been something since the 17th century was required of all students, and, Hen and uh, Charles Francis Adams Jr., who was a bad Greek student, thought it was a disaster. He himself went to Harvard, and he argued that it was a college fetish and that it shouldn't still be required. This ended up, even though this was not a novel argument on his part, this ended up causing a national controversy about the nature of 
college in the United States and whether elite schools should continue to require ancient Greek and Latin of all students, and they should continue to require all students to, sub to study those subjects in college as well. How did the traditionalists respond? As I attempt to argue in the in the book, the traditionalists responded poorly. I mean, they had a good sense. They wanted to retain the classical humanities and higher education. They were concerned that they would be shunted to the side. They were right about those things. So they, they had the right intentions in the same way that defenders of the modern humanities today who focus on uh, critical thinking, they have the right intentions too, but their arguments were bad. What they attempted to argue was that Greek and Latin need to be required parts of American secondary and higher education because these subjects supposedly offered students unparalleled mental discipline. They were supposedly a kind of mental gymnastics that was better than any other kind of mental gymnastics students could get. And as a result, they were required elements of the American college curriculum and American secondary curriculum for those who were attending to go off to college. It didn't take very long for people who supported Adam's speech to destroy those arguments. The defenders of the classical humanities had essentially no proof that these subjects inculcated greater mental discipline than did other subjects. And so this was a major problem. And further, by offering that kind of argument, they completely went against huge arguments from the Renaissance, which had revivified the humanities, which suggested that these authors, these specific authors were important for everyone to read because they could perfect the human being. Instead, they focused on this kind of mental gymnastics, and this made the social scientists, who were the opponents of the humanists, or the classical humanists during the course of the Battle of the Classics, that made them the rightful judges of educational value. It was a disaster, and a few years later, Harvard dropped Greek as a required subject for its admissions examinations. From your description, we can see the obvious relevance of this 140-year-old controversy to the debates today over making utilitarian, skills-based arguments instead of the substance. The Greek language in itself, the Roman language in the words of Virgil is a beautiful thing and that it must be preserved in substance for itself. But I'm surprised that they didn't they didn't go there. I mean, was this just the the spirit of the progressive spirit of the age that was sort of saying more forward looking, more practical? approaches to things? Partly it was it was that, but I think it was other things as well. One of them pertains to the way in which the classical languages were taught in early America, and particularly in the 19th century. As a result of the fact that many American college professors didn't have much advanced training until the advent of the PhD and so forth, both in Germany and then ultimately in the United States, a number of the teachers of the classical languages in early America were barely college graduates themselves, and they could barely handle the classic classical curriculum. And as a result of that, they tended to focus on grammatical minutiae 
at the expense of more genuinely humanist approaches to the study of the ancients. And as a result, they kind of naturally, I think, gravitated to the idea that mental discipline should be the kind of defense that we should offer, because it was really hard for them to suggest that people could learn how to be a good person from reading Virgil if they're reading one line of Virgil and trying to figure out where the participle was over and over again as their examination of the classics themselves. So some of it, I think, is, is based on the pedagogical realities of, of the American college curriculum that sort of hemmed in these defenders to offer these bad arguments for the humanities. Let me just make a, a curmudgeonly remark here. Uh, frankly, Eric, I'm, I'm amazed at young PhDs in their pretty narrow body of learning that they have in their heads. You know, the generalist teacher is becoming a disappearing figure. Everyone's hyper-specialized. Everyone does theory uh, and a very narrow literary historical or, or artistic historical range of, of thought. And I think that that does disarm people from making good arguments for the substance, for the breadth of knowing the tradition, you know, just erudition in itself is, is a value. But I think, I think that for, for various reasons, I, I think that's lost, but let, let's jump ahead. Another event that you cover uh, in detail, a debate between two presidents, one from Harvard, one from Princeton. What was that event? There was a debate a couple of years after the Adams speech between Charles W. Eliot, who was the longstanding president of Harvard University. For 40 years, he was president of Harvard University and really modernized Harvard from what was really, in essence, a college, a kind of classical college, to becoming the sort of university we think of today, uh, versus uh, James McCosh, who was the president of what was then called the College of New Jersey, but is now called uh, Princeton University, um, who was a Scottish philosopher who became the president at Princeton during the course of his later life. This debate happened in New York City, and it matched two major figures in American educational thought who had very different visions of a college education. Charles W. Eliot was a scientist, he was a chemist, who offered a kind of Darwinian Spencerian vision of education focused on student choice. He believed that there would, should be a kind of defense of student choice to such a degree that those subjects that failed to win student attention should die, a survival of the fittest, if you will. And he supported uh, the, the so-called free elective curriculum which uh, maximized student choice. Against him was McCosh, who focused on a sort of watered down version of the traditionalist case that was partly prescribed, partly required of all students, including Latin and Greek, and then partly also student choice. Uh, as well for their at least later coursework. This was a major debate. It got into major American magazines and newspapers because obviously the presidents of Princeton and, and, and Harvard were debating over this subject. And as I attempt to argue, unfortunately, McCosh, although he did make some decent points against 
um, Eliot's own vision of education. Unfortunately, Makash offered many types of arguments that were offered against Adams that had lost. He based his case in part on mental discipline, so the same mistakes that were made two years earlier in the response to the Adams speech. That's one issue. And then the second issue is he focused too much, I think, on Christian sectarianism, that ancient Greek was required of all college students because we need trained ministers. And that argument in the latter part of the 19th century, although it would have some support from Americans, had dwindling support as America was becoming more secularized. Final question, Eric. Uh, if we come up to today, what do you think is the best way to break people free from this skills and critical thinking dogma in the humanities? Well, first of all, as I attempt to argue, I think we need a core curriculum for the humanities. I attempt to argue that the sort of curriculum that we have in most, if not almost all, American higher education institutions is one based on the scientific method. It was crafted in the late 19th century in order to sideline the humanities. Continued focus on that curriculum and use of that curriculum, which is a essentially a Darwinian curriculum of survival of the fittest, is not going to lead to the flourishing of the humanities. We've seen this over and over again. So the humanities require, maybe other subjects don't, but the humanities on college campuses require a core curriculum. The chief argument against a core curriculum is that it's too narrow. You have either the core curriculum of the Renaissance humanists, which focuses only on Greek and Latin authors from antiquity, or you have the great books curriculum, which focuses only on Western authors. Well, I try to argue that Irving Babbitt, a thinker very important from the late 19th and early 20th century, in America, a, a professor of French at Harvard, crafted a kind of world curriculum focused on the masterworks of world culture, and that we can argue against the sort of inclusion arguments by suggesting that we should have a genuinely inclusive curriculum, but based on masterworks of world culture, and that this should be required of all students so that students recognize that they have a duty to figure out as part of their college education what it means to be a good person and how they want to live their lives. The book is The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. Professor Adler, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.